0: You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. I'm Ahmed Zappa. I can't wait to do a show that's only about my favorite bands, which I don't think people talk about enough on Rock and Roll Archaeology. Kick Tracy, Brittany Fox, you know, just some of the classics. <laughs> Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, Diggers. Welcome back to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Yeah, we took a a week off. We launched, uh, released, dropped, however you want to say it. Uh, Episode 17 bookends like we promised. uh, And hopefully uh, you have gotten a chance to listen to it. I'll get into that in a little bit. Of course, Christian Swain here. I'm the rock and roll archaeologist behind the mic in San Francisco. Okay, all that's done. All right, here's the news. Uh, We are proud of um, this one-of-a-kind approach, uh, an audio magazine, uh, if you will, of high-quality uh, podcast that is Pantheon. And we thank you for your, all your support. We we started this four years ago, well, three and a half years ago with, uh, with the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast and then started adding more podcasts. We have 10 now. We put them all in the same feed. We call it The Big Pipe. Uh, and <clears throat> I got to say, without all of your support, um, we, you know, we couldn't have uh, gone on and, and done all of this. And uh, we we really appreciate it. So, what we have done and, and what we're now excited to let you know is every show is now available as part of Pantheon and can be found on their own podcast feeds. Um, so please um, subscribe to them uh, in, uh, uh, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Radio.com, Pandora, all, all the places that you find uh, great podcasts. Uh, we are everywhere. And uh, if you could, uh, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows um, that you've come to love. Uh, And always, uh, you know, send us feedback. Uh, We've been getting a lot of that, and we really appreciate it. We look forward to adding more shows uh, to fill the halls here at our uh, very own Pantheon of Rock and Roll. So find them at PantheonPodcasts.com. All right, episode 17. Hey. It's called Bookends, uh, and it was released last week, and like I said, it was a big one. It's a double episode, uh, coming in at almost two hours of rock and roll knowledge. We hope you all got a chance to listen, and if you haven't, please uh, go and get it. So we are very quickly getting to the end of the 1960s in our retelling of the entire history of rock and roll. Yes, the entire history of rock and roll. We will get to it, uh, just about everything that mattered uh, before we're done here. uh or more accurately um not rock and roll but the music of the latter half of the 20th century and the culture that birthed it um this time we take you mostly to new york in the late 1960s and discuss a couple of uh, polar opposite artists simon and garfunkel and the Velvet Underground. We add a few side trips as uh, we barrel towards the end of the decade like a shooting. <laughs> and the uh, proto-origins of punk from a couple of acts uh, that hail uh, from Detroit to the MC5 and the Stooges. Uh, you know, so from quiet to reflective and cerebral to gut-punching street dirt rock and roll. Bookends, please let us know what you think we just have a few more stories to tell uh two in fact uh we're getting into 1969 and then we're going to close it up and we're actually going to call this volume one uh as before we move into the 1970s um so lots more bookends to come and just so you know uh we are already working on episode 18 uh we've already got it mapped out we're deep into the writing and um We hopefully, and I know I say this every time, we hopefully will get this out much quicker than we did. Uh, in episode 17 but again it is literally a work in progress this is the first draft that you are actually watching and seeing here be put together uh, and then put out um, uh, you know individually Um, you know we've already looked at the uh, the 17 episodes and kind of said wow I'd like to fix this like to fix that and and in time we may we may go back and and do that with the uh, the earlier episodes so All right. Uh, A new rock and roll librarian is also out. Uh, Shelly and I dove into the recently departed diva of divas, Aretha Franklin, through Ms. Meredith Oak's book, Aretha, Queen of Soul, A Life of Photographs. Uh, the Reverend Andy King is serving up Hell's Bells, uh, the Danger of Rock Music, as the next real rock, which comes out, I believe, later this week, and makes mocking fun of the 1989 moral panic piece, uh, while also deciding that maybe uh, faith and you know modern music can coexist. So keep an eye out for all this great stuff coming from Pantheon Podcasts, and of course, tell a friend. Okay, diggers, that is the housekeeping this week. So why don't we get to the show and meet our special guest? Oh, I have a fondness for L.A. punk. Uh, I've said that recently. We've had a couple of neat L.A. punkers uh, on the show lately. Uh, well, I also love a highly executed and perfectly performed musicianship. And, um, you know, let's face it, most of punk is not that. It's more visceral and raw emotion. Uh, I know, I know. Uh, i said it before, walking, talking contradictions. Um, but that's why. I think I was chosen to tell the entire story of rock and roll. I love it all. I really do. And let's face it, uh, you know, there is a bit of that punker attitude in the trash metal scene, especially in Megadeth, who did record an excellent version of the Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK. Um, I think they also did another uh, song in the in the mid-90s on their uh, cover EP. Um, so today, we're going to dig into J. Marshall Craig's latest book, Megalife, the autobiography of Nick Menza. Yeah, for those of you unaware and asking, how can you have Mr. Craig write an autobiography for somebody else? Well, that's because originally it was supposed to be Nick's own telling with help from Jeff. Unfortunately for all of us, Nick Menza passed away suddenly on May 21st, 2016, on stage at the famous Baked Potato in Studio City, California. Three songs into uh, the set with his band, Ohm. So, after a time to mourn his friend, uh, Jeff soldiered on and completed the book with help from Nick's family and friends. Nick Menza, most famously, was a part of the highly regarded classic 90s lineup of Dave Mustaine's Megadeth. During his time in the band, they recorded Rust in Peace, uh, Countdown to Extinction, Euthanasia, and Cryptic Writings. Of course, he toured all over the world. Uh, This is considered peak Megadeth, and I agree. As you'll hear, Nick came to the band with a special set of skills, a background suited to anchor the trash metal monsters of rock and the heart of a lion to help propel them to rock and roll stardom. Jeff captures Nick, humanizes him, and gets you to understand what an amazing drummer he really was. But more importantly, what a crazy, insightful, yet playful, uh, caring and committed musician he was. Uh, the book is not so much rock star excesses uh, as, as more ordinary man with extraordinary talent. Sure, there are the highs and lows of working with Mustaine, who can be his own worst enemy and knows it. Uh, remember, this is the guy who got kicked out of Metallica, a band he helped co-found, uh, given only a Greyhound bus ticket from New York to L.A. for being a malicious drunk in a band of drunks. And let me say, I, I am a huge fan of Mustaine. So much so that when I first heard P-Cells, I thought Megadeth would be bigger than his old band. Eh, yeah, I, I'm better at looking backwards and analyzing instead of forwards and predicting. Okay, all right, let's, <laughs> let's get to the head banging here. Ladies and gentlemen, J. Marshall Craig. Jeff Marshall Craig, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you. I'm well, Christian. How are you doing?
0: well i'm a little under the weather uh you know uh uh, as my diggers know uh you know i've got a a little bit of a cold and uh uh, you know eh, it's winter time it's the close to the end of winter thank god and uh you know eh, yeah yeah i'm nothing special everybody has to suffer through one of these every once in a while so but uh let's get into it the the (laughs) book mega life uh the autobiography of nick menza is not an autobiography. It's been written by you because Nick passed away on May twenty first, twenty sixteen. And like the book, let's begin at the end. Uh, it seems like All a right. very metal thing to do. Uh, sure. uh, how were you able to finish what had been a, a book project between the two of you?
1: Well, it was it was rough. It took me. Um... It took me about a year to uh, to make amendments, to rewrite, <clears throat> and uh, and adjust the book. The bi- I'll tell you the the biggest challenge for me was that Nick was a really positive, forward looking guy. It was it was actually a difficult book to write because Nick didn't he didn't like looking back. He honestly had trouble remembering dates and locations and things like that. Everything about him was what he was going to do, looking forward and doing. And everything was in the present or the future tense, and I didn't want to change that in the book. And, and in in consultation with his parents, particularly his mother Rose, um, you know, I proposed this. I said, "I'd like to keep the, um, the, the the tense present in the book. I'd like to say Nick does, Nick likes to, Nick's favorite, rather than past tense. You know, Nick used to, Nick, right. what, mm-hmm. that sort of thing." And, and <clears throat> that presented a writing challenge for me to keep it that way. And have it seem natural, you know, with, you know, just about every reader having it in the front of his or her mind that Nick has has passed away. So that took a long time, and it was also grieving for me because Nick and I were roommates when we started working on the book before I uh, uh, before I moved to the Cape Cod, and uh, just you know before I left California, we actually roomed together um, to get to know each other well. We hadn't known each other before he brought me in on the project. And uh, we became very close and, and visited uh, me back and forth uh, to LA quite regularly. So and it was here's another thing. I think Nick died on the 21st of May 2016. He had a ticket to fly out here to visit me on the Monday morning. So I, I was expecting to go up to Logan in Boston to pick yep, him up the right. Monday oh. morning. And Sunday the day before I get a call that he's he died. Yeah. You know. So it, it, was, it was sheer grief for me too. I didn't I didn't touch the book for months. So so that's where it became a book of and why we left it as autobiography, because it's Nick's words, my writing, if you will. That's mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. the way it Sort of the way I, I dealt with with his passing. And 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 the book
0: does start with the, the event itself, uh, to let the reader know that uh, yeah. Nick passed away. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, as we, we talked a little bit here uh, in the green room before we began, um, you know, we're both players. And, I, I you know, I, I think all of us agree that, you know, if you're going to go, the best place to go is right in the middle of a song. Uh, where you're, you know, you're on stage, you're doing everything that you absolutely love and boom, you know, and, and, yep. and yeah, that's it. And that's
1: what happened to him on the, at the baked potato, right? Yes. Yeah. Three songs in and, and Nick said, Nick said that on the record it's in, it is in the book. Nick said, I'm never going to retire. Um, his father is Don Menza, the the famed um, jazz saxophonist, and Don is over eighty. He still plays, goes on little tours, and Nick said, "Like my dad, I'm never going to retire. I want to die on my drum kit." He's that that is in the book, um, and he say he said that on camera. There's a documentary actually, Christian. I'm I'm uncertain as to when it's coming out. Could be this coming fall. Um, and it's it's a documentary on the baked potato, and there's a, there's a lot of, of footage of Nick talking, and I, he says that on camera. He said, that's how I hope I go. And so, yeah, it's he, – he, he lived and died the, exactly the way he wanted to. So the
0: book was well within process before his uh, untimely death. So so why Nick Menza? I mean, you, you've written books uh, uh, with Eric Burden uh, and Chuck Lavelle. Why were you writing a book about uh, a drummer, most famously from what's considered a classic lineup of Megadeth uh, in the 1990s?
1: Well, it's <laughs> the, the answer quite simply is uh, the book I wrote with Eric Burden. Um, the, the mother of Nick's children, uh, Terry, she's a huge Eric Burden fan and she had read my book. Uh, I didn't know anybody from the Menza camp, although it turns out, you know, once I met Nick, once we started palling around and, uh, and starting to work on the book, we realized we knew all kinds of, we had all kinds of mutual friends because I've spent some, so many, you know, two decades in the music business living in LA myself. Ugh. But I did but I didn't know Terry didn't know Nick or Don or Rose <clears throat> um, but when uh, when Nick was toying with the idea of, of putting his story down Terry said hire this guy and he was like who and uh, and so you know we, we we bounced back and forth for somewhere between three and six months again it was a mutual friend introduced us via email and telephone and we went back and forth for a few months talking about what I how I envisioned a book by and about him, wh- what his intent was, what he wanted to get down on paper and express in the book. And then, then we met and cl- and clicked, I mean, um, you know, I I share a very uh, silly and aberrant sense of humor that that Nick is has well deservedly <laughs> comes widely through open. in the book. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we you know we we became very very close very quickly and uh, and it was good. It was a bit of a crash course for me because. Um, uh, this this may be appalling to, to some of your listeners, but I, I was really not that familiar with Megadeth. Of of course, uh, you know Rust in Peace, Holy Wars. I knew I knew the yeah, I knew, the, mar- I knew yeah. the Marquee things, yeah. but I you know I'm I'm more of a, a, a Stones, Zeppelin, you know Joe Bonamassa, uh, or Rush. Yes, kind of you know I I just I'm on the periphery of that the really intense hardcore thrash stuff. It just wasn't you know my kind of thing. So I, I needed to learn about it, and you know I got to tell you, I I can't think of a better way to have learned about it than directly from Nick. Actually jamming with Nick, you know, in his studio and having him show me some of the stuff he did, sitting on his drum kit, playing right in front of me. Uh, that's how that was my introduction to Megadeth and Nick Menza.
0: Well, you know, just so you know, we're, we're all about the entire history of rock and roll, uh, and we find it's basically all the music of the latter half of the 20th century we consider right. rock and roll, and our listeners are interested in how it all kind of fits together. Uh, and uh, you know the, this the thrash metal scene, uh, you know, uh, in some ways might be an acquired taste, but there is some real quality uh, to it. And you know, uh, yeah, most people know the story of uh, you know certainly Met- Metallica being at the, the the top tier of that uh, that group uh, just yeah. uh, by by fame, if you if you take that as a as a as a, uh, a judgment, um, uh, and that uh, Dave Mustaine. Uh, you know, was in Metallica, was famously kicked out and started Megadeth. And, you know, so just so everybody knows, that 90s lineup was made up of Dave Mustaine, Dave Ellison, Marty Friedman and Nick. Um, So tell us about
1: Nick growing up in the San Fernando Valley. Well, he was he was enormously popular and he he started drumming uh, quite young because he he grew up uh, with with Don, as um, <clears throat> as his father. Yes, and, we've established his his and, dad and, was a famous Nick, saxophonist, right? And and that that because of that, Nick was blessed with an almost encyclopedic knowledge and love of music of all all kinds of well aside from country and western. That's just that's just a fact. Not a, not a big country and western fan, but Nick, um, you know, when he was a teenager, he was getting drum lessons from. Uh, from Buddy Rich, right? He, uh, you know, and uh, Louis Belson. Louis uh, Nick, as we know, is famous for the double kick. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he one day I think he said he was fourteen. He he went and answered the door. You know, he's a, a sk, skinny San Bernardino Valley kid. You know, just wearing shorts, no shirt, and shoes, and the doorbell rings. He goes and answers the door. It's a delivery, and it's a double um, a double bass kit that Louis Belson sent him. That was Nick's first double bass kit, so that's how Nick grew up, and so he was by, by Louis Belson uh, sending
0: you a drum kit. That's yeah. pretty special.
1: Yeah, and he he had that. He had that at the house.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. So I, so I, Nick kind of had a leg up on the competition because oh of yeah his dad, yeah
1: right. <clears throat> yeah exactly, and and his dad was um, you know very fierce about um, about rehearsing about practicing. And you know about the the the, the rudiments of music. Um, tried to get Nick to go to Berkeley, and that was not Nick at all. Nick didn't read music. didn't want to learn. He had this this purest his purest form was to to learn it and feel it and and know the music that way. And you know, obviously, it worked for him. Um, so he started playing drums in bands in high school, and and you know, also it's it's LA, so he's hanging out with. Uh, with John Gumby Green and, um, you know, some, some pretty amazing players. Um, and actually Gumby was, uh, he ended up with the Megadeth crew. He was, um, he was Mustaine's, uh, guitar tech before Nick was the, uh, Chuck Bueller's drum tech. So, you know, he, he played in high school with guys who went on to work with, um, Megadeth before Nick was, was even in the band. So he, he was groomed by birth for this sort of thing, really. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, And, uh, uh, uh,
0: you know, he got such a reputation, I think, in the L.A. scene that um, in your book, you you point out this story, which I, I didn't know and I found really interesting. Was because uh, I do remember being in LA at this time, and I remember this kind of story floating through. I can't remember if it was like rumor or just you know, word on the street, or if I'd read it in the Music Connection magazine or what have you, but that Slayer was had an open audition for drummers, yeah, uh, and uh, anybody could come and you know, try to be Slayer's drummer, and that
1: Nick actually ended up being Slayer's drummer for a few weeks. He yeah he, he got the gig it was a, it was a, I think he told me he was in the band for about a month it was about 30 days
0: <clears throat> yeah because the uh the the original drummer i think he kind of was blanking a little bit of a power play and like quit and uh, and then you know came to realize that somebody of equal quality uh, was about ready to take his throne and he came back and that was the end of Nick Mean and Slayer right
1: exactly yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's that's that is a true story uh
0: okay so nick took to drums from a very early age um but other than that uh you know he was a regular kid just growing up in socal suburbia
1: right well he was and and you know one of those one of those equalizing things that that's very likely each of us has gone through nick told me that when he decided um, or when he realized maybe, maybe more prophetically that that is the life he was going to have was, I think he was 16 years old and he came out of a screening of uh, Song Remains the Same first time he saw Song Remains the Same he came out of that theater and was like, oh okay I'm, I've got it, I'm done, uh, I don't need school anymore, I'm going to be a rock and roll drummer oh. that was it, he, he saw that film for the first time and he was like he saw what Bonham was doing up there in the uh, Madison Square Garden stage, and that Nick decided that's what he was going to do, and it's what he did. Wow, that's pretty crazy. But yep. um,
0: And then uh, just uh, the rest uh, was just, you know, motorcycles and uh, yep. you know, friends and uh, cartoons and, you know, a normal kind of uh,
1: late 70s, early 80s kid, right? Yeah, spending the summers with his pals on their, their bicycles, riding their bikes into the pool, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> just, you know, just, just complete hijinks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, of course he ends up in the 1980s
0: metal scene, uh, yeah. and wisely steers uh, towards the thrash metal genre, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, largely uh, because of the um, because of the athletics of the drumming, he liked that. Uh, his favorite drummers were, uh, and and the drummers from whom he learned the most, he told me, uh, Neil Peart from Rush and Bonham from Zeppelin. Those were the um, that's what he aspired to. Those were his heroes. Yes. Yes. Right.
0: Right. Uh, and then he played in several bands who ended up not getting uh, above a rung or two on the ladder of rock and roll success. Right.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, he he toured with one band. They they opened for Foghat and and it was pretty hard at that time to, to make it in L.A. Because uh, as you may have experienced back in in those days, there was a lot of um, pay to play. Yes. No, so, know it uh, well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, a thousand
0: dollars, get a hundred tickets. And uh, if you sell them for $10, you can make your money back. Uh, you're supposed to sell them for 15 so you can make 500 yep. bucks. Yep. Yep. But he was, I know
1: uh, well. <laughs> he was in a band with, um, with, um, Kel Rhodes, uh, Kelly Rhodes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Randy, Randy Rhodes's brother brother, right? brother. yeah mm-hmm. so and they they made quite a splash I think they were the band that opened for fog hat on a, on a California tour and the guy I mentioned before uh, Gumby uh, John Green he was in that band they were in a uh, there was emerald uh, band called the green which was a uh, diddle there was just a that was a cover band but they were really hot they were there with um, um, Darwin Ballard on on bass and they, they were, um, you know, regulars at the whiskey. Uh, you know, this, they, it was, they, they played the scene. And this was at the same time as, um, you know, coming up um, Motley Crue, the Guns N' Roses, you know, that, yeah. that poison, that that whole Sunset uh, yeah. thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. I know it well. Uh, and uh, uh, so let's see. I think um, uh, uh, interesting. so So after the Slayer audition – uh, and the fact of founding member uh, Dave Lombardo coming back, yeah. uh, Nick um, uh, slowly enters into the stain world, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> do you think yeah. Slayer audition had something to do with the Megadeth's interest, or, or was it just coincidence?
1: No, that was co- coincidental. What um, what what I learned really happened was, you know, Nick had a couple of friends who were working with the crew, with the Megadeth crew. And also <clears throat> there's a, a really cool guy. He was um um I think it was his last name was McLaughlin. He was the uh house sound guy out at the country club out in uh, out in the valley and he went to run sound for Megadeth so when it you know looked like they were going to need a a drum tech slash replacement for chuck all that he dropped nick's name gumby you know at, at by that point was mustaine's guitar tech he dropped nick's name so, you know, Nick had some people on the inside who were uh, knew that he he could he could take the drum throne for Megadeth and recommended him. And he so he went he he met the guys in the band a few times, hung out and smoked a joint here and there in the bathroom with Mustaine, and you know kind of got to got to know them. And then took on the role as the the drum tech. So, you know, Nick Nick was in the organization for I think almost two years before he actually became the drummer.
0: Yeah, yeah, cuz he doesn't get the drumming gig uh for the band although I think he tells his parents that he did, right? It still belongs yeah, to Chuck <laughs> Beller. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Uh, and, and the, isn't isn't
1: there isn't there a story about his dad basically showing up one day showing up on, on tour in Europe and there's Nick moving uh, road cases across the stage. Yeah. You say, Hey, what are yeah. you doing that for? Uh, yeah.
0: well, dad, let me tell you. Uh,
1: but here's, a- here's one of the, one of my favorite stories that Nick told me, I think they were in, um, he was, he was tacking for Chuck and they were in, um, Ireland, I believe. And I came up to sound check and Chuck was a no show. And, uh, Nick got up and played the sound check and uh, Mustaine asked him if he, you know, what songs he knew on the on the, the pretense that if Chuck didn't show for the gig, could Nick play the gig, asking Nick if he knew the songs, and and Nick was yeah yeah I know them all, and Mustaine was like we well, yeah you don't know this one though do you and play it yeah yeah sure he could play it, and then he pulled out uh, Mustaine pulled out Holy Wars which they hadn't even recorded at that point Nick knew it, just really? from, just from being the drum tech being around Nick had one of those ears he he would only have to hear a song once or twice. And he had a dial in.
0: Yeah. So he really put in the time and swabbed the decks of ship Megadeth until one day it did happen.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, he had actually, and if this gives you any sense of, of the, um, the, the, the timber of Nick's uh, passion and his ambition, He quit. As the drum tech, because it wasn't happening fast enough, flew. Home. He was done with with the organization. Flew home, had no gigs, nothing, and it, a couple months went by. and And he got the call from Mustaine uh, to take on um, the uh, the drum throne. And he hung up on him because he thought it was one of his friends just taking the piss and just you know um, teasing him. He, one of those classic stories. He Mustaine calls and he hangs up, hangs up on him, and then he got a call from. Uh, uh, from the manager said you know you're only going to get that call once i think you better ring mustaine back um, <laughs> yeah. so that, that yeah so so that's that's how nick uh, got that got the gig huh? finally landed the gig yeah.
0: <laughs> well let's see hanging up on the st- and then the <laughs> other the other adventures that go on through the book huh that's uh that's a ominous sign there so all right let's talk about the presence that uh, right. for good and bad looms over uh, the book and that is the one and only dave Mustaine, famously yeah. fired from metallica before they began their rise to uh superstardom now That might kill a lot of other guys, but Mustaine goes on, especially early on, to match them with his own thrash metal band, uh, Megadeth. So what can you tell our diggers about Dave Mustaine
1: um, as a person from Nick's perspective? Um, You know, of course, there was a lot of acrimony uh, with with Mustaine firing him and then with all of the – uh, <clears throat> too-close-for-comfort reunion attempts. And and the last one was brutal. Was, yeah, we'll uh, get into that. Yeah, it, it, yeah we'll, we'll get to that. Now, um, <clears throat> all of that said, Nick, um, his anger, his um, heartbreak and, and everything else, Nick maintained always that uh, he had an enormous amount, an endless amount of gratitude to Mustaine. He said, you know, Mustaine gave me uh, my dream gig. I'm thankful. Mustaine taught me everything I know about recording, about being in a recording studio. Taught me everything I know about songwriting, about being a band leader, about, you know, e- enormously uh, grateful, so willing to express that, and it's, it's you know, it's all over the book. Uh, you know, Nick says amazing things about Mustaine, and he glowed. He said, I you know, he's a brother, I love the guy, and he drives me absolutely crazy. He's his own worst enemy, and you know, in, in in fact Nick always maintained that anything that ever held Megadeth back, uh, was because it was Mustaine's own, you know, pig headedness or um, or you know, myopic view of the future, whatever it was. Um, but lovingly, you know. But he he also was very firm about he didn't want to trash Mustaine in the book. He said you know no, that stuff. I, I don't think he did uh, at
0: all. I, don't, I, don't. I, I he had every opportunity to do so, and yeah. and and let me tell you, uh, you know, as we'll talk about the, the firing, you know, he had every right to
1: do so. Yeah, yeah, but he said that's that's not my style. And he said that's not how I feel, and he always said. Uh, that you know, if if things were right, he'd love to do a reunion. Um, but he he always maintained that about <clears throat> um, ab- about Mustaine. He he kind of took Mustaine with um, you know with with a sort sort of a sly. You know, a wink and and a nudge, and just simply never took him too seriously. That that's my my inference from from everything Nick told me and what we wrote, and it would seem to to bear out that that's what happened. And and that was one of the sources of the friction between them was he didn't didn't bow to Mustaine, didn't he? Just Mustaine was the the singer and the founder of the band, and that was it. But otherwise, Mustaine was an equal. That's how Nick viewed everybody and thought a band should work. That was yeah. the, that was, yeah. Yes,
0: that's that's the best way a band should work. I mean, you know, you, you always need a leader, but you you know, yeah. it, it's best, especially <laughs> in an artistic uh, environment, that the leader uh, be uh, empathetic to the the other players. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and from what I gather, not only from your book, but from other things that I've read,
1: you know, Mustaine is not exactly that kind of leader that's everything uh all the evidence would suggest that yeah,
0: yeah. exactly yeah now now of course you know uh, uh, something else that i did get out of the book and you've kind of touched on a little bit is that you know his work ethic and uh, and his uh, writing ability were were definitely you know uh, you know worthy of you know holding on to that mantle of leader right absolutely
1: yeah absolutely
0: so there's been a lot of personnel changes in the band. Um, yeah. why, but why do you think most fans consider the, the classic lineup and peak of Megadeth success as that 1990 to
1: 1999 period? Well, I can't speak for fans, but what I can tell you is in my, my own listening research and, and, and what have you, becoming more familiar with, with all of the material myself... Yeah, especially coming from it with really fresh perspective. You, you, yeah, as yeah. you've said, you
0: you weren't much of a fan of of, of Megadeth uh, beforehand. You, you know, you kind of knew about him in the periphery, yeah. but uh, yeah. you know, you you hadn't dived into their catalog. Had you seen him live
1: uh, before? No, no. Okay, no, no. So, all right, so not at all. And, all right, no, and and so what? What I my takeaway was. <clears throat> Once it got into the, um, you know, the, the the latter recordings with Nick and Marty in the band, and then the recordings after, m- to my ears, everything seemed to be either emulating or even in the poorer moments, uh, parroting or trying to cover, like the, trying to cover themselves. Like Dave was trying to, um, not from the songwriting, but the, well, I, I guess some of the songwriting, but it just all seemed reaching for past glory all the albums since that's the way i took it as a listener and that might be entirely unfair um but that that was my interpretation that's what my ears heard Mm. uh well if you if you think of their arc uh you know
0: with any band i mean you know they've now been around for uh geez uh 35 years uh i would say um Uh, You know, it's not unusual for a band to spend the first five years, you know, growing into their own, uh, which, you know, which would, you know, give them into that into that peak period. And then having a a peak period, uh, and even if all the members stay the same uh, and then and then they begin to to wane and, you know, to your point, uh, you know, uh, try to recapture that. that uh that magic uh that once existed um so it I, I don't think it's that unusual of a of a story um but uh you know from from what i've read and uh and and hear myself i agree with you that that you know those, those albums of that that uh that 1990 1999 period yeah you know, are probably peak uh uh megadeth for a variety of reasons uh and you know i think um i think uh you know some of the people that replaced uh the guys cuz let's face it i mean Megadeth that still has you know dave mustaine and and dave Ellison and yeah. uh and then they've changed out some of the uh you know the the rhythm players uh, a couple of times um they never quite captured the same uh feeling of that um you know that balls to the wall um um, um uh, 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 Kind of sound that, that no, they no. had with the that, with that big four.
1: Now I can tell you that uh, Nick really appreciated the Dystopia record. He thought that was a, a really, really strong record, and <clears throat> and perhaps um, <clears throat> even even I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, heartbreakingly, the stuff they were working on when when the reunion fell through, um, because they it's not widely known, I don't think they. I mean they the whole, uh, trying to, to lure Marty and lure Nick back and, you know, put that back together. If for only one album, if for only one tour, um, you know, they were trading songs back and forth and Nick shared them all with me. I heard what Nick was doing on the new songs and, uh, and yeah, it was pretty spectacular. And, you know, that became the record after Nick died and, um, <clears throat> a lot of those songs didn't make the record, but there, you know, I, I could hear it. There was magic with those four guys. There, real, there really was. And and whether they were going to be able to capture lightning in a bottle twice, who knows? We'll never know. But it, it sounded to me from those demos that Nick shared with me that it, it was going to be there. And then just, you know, junk and personalities got in the way of the reunion, which, um, which sucked. I would have, I would have liked that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would have been uh, been cool to see them get back together and uh, and go out on the road with that classic lineup. And I, I think a lot of people tried to make that happen, uh, yeah. but it just you know, one reason or another, didn't. Uh, I want to, I, I want you to comment on something. Uh, yeah. I, I really believe in something Nick says in the book about how strenuous playing metal music can be. I've always felt the <clears throat> uh, that the music, the metal music, in some ways, is as athletic as his musical ability, uh, required to, uh, to perform at this and especially for, for drummers.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Nick, <clears throat> Nicks he, he practiced a lot of the stuff he wrote for Megadeth in the whole time, the, all the years that I knew him. <clears throat> um, because he, no matter what he was doing, if he was going out with uh, the, his last band, Ohm, with Chris Poland and, and PAG, uh, you know, which was <clears throat> much more progressive, you know, more of a jazzy kind of thing. Nick still practiced well, Holy Wars and stuff like that. That's That was his workout because um, he, he told me, he said, I, I can't think of anything better to keep myself in drumming shape than this stuff. Now, <clears throat> he said he, uh, he he couldn't imagine doing that. You know, past his fifties or into his sixties, playing stuff like that every night. He said, you know, maybe a one-off. You could you could do it here and there. But he said, you. He said it doesn't matter how good you are. He said I can't do right now <clears throat> what some twenty-year-old drummers can do. He said I I just I don't have the body for it anymore. The stem, you know, the all that. He said, but alternatively, because of my experience and expertise and professionalism, I can still outplay a twenty-year-old. But I don't I don't I don't have the stamina to go up there and play three nights a week for a year all over the world playing this kind of music. So, no, exactly. As you say, he he knew there was a, um, you know, the the clock was ticking there. There is an hourglass on that kind of um, drumming. Yeah, it's just
0: uh, especially drumming. But I I, I think it's uh, it's the whole you know, the whole vibe, it's uh, uh, there's a toll physically that uh, is taken uh, when you perform that way. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, it's uh, it's not just metal music. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think uh, we we we'd both agree that, uh, you know, Prince suffered um, some of that strenuous stage presence that, you know, was required of him every night that he put out, uh, you know, to the nth degree, uh, to the point where, you know, he had, uh, uh hip damage and, uh, and that's what caused, uh, his reliance on, uh, uh, opioids that, you know, ended up taking his life. Well, indeed,
1: Christian, exactly the same thing with Tom Petty. You found yep, out that he, exactly. um, you know, he, that Hollywood Bowl show, the last show he played, yep. he, he was, um, he, he had a broken hip. Yeah. Same thing with petty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a, you know, r- rock and roll seems all, uh, uh, uh romantic and, uh, glorious and, uh, you know, easy, uh, from the, from the audience's perspective, but, uh, but there's, there's a lot in it. Uh, the travel alone, uh, it, oh, that doesn't yeah. kill you. Uh, and the bad <laughs> food, uh, then, uh, you know, the, uh, uh the constant, uh, requirement for touring, especially today when, um, you know, you don't have the record sales, which is used to be exactly. where, where you made your money. You know, yeah. uh, there's a reason there's so many bands out on the road
1: these days is because, you know, that's the only place to actually make money. In the well, and business. why the, and why the tours are so prolonged? I mean, I you know, we recall those Stones tours that went on for eighteen months at a time. It's because they they had to put on a big show, and that show had to you know pay crack, for itself. Yeah. yeah, pay for itself, which took fifteen or twenty you know stadium gigs before you break. And even and what, one of the funny, <clears throat> very true and apt things I remember Keith Richards saying was an interviewer asked him, well, how do you, how do you stay in shape?" And he said, what do you mean? I play guitar in the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <It's> like, <"Hey, laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll do it for
0: you, just the like workout. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Uh, you know, and uh, what about recording uh, metal music in the studio? Is it, do, you, do you think it's as strenuous
1: as, uh, as being on the road? Well, I, Nick was very, very regimented in how he liked to record, he told me. And indeed, I, I witnessed in his studio, uh, he did not like click tracks. Uh, He was a fan of recording live, and or as much as possible, and indeed that was a criticism he had of the Megadeth recording um, regimen as it as it went on, as the the more albums they did and the longer he was with the band. You know, uh, I don't think they ever recorded digital. I think they stuck with two inch um, when he was when he was still in the band. But you know, they moved to click tracks. They moved to Um, you know, songwriting by, by, um, um, uh, composting by, you know, layering tracks and that sort of thing it wasn't live anymore. And so to answer your question, ultimately, Nick liked it as vigorous and loud and as sweaty and so as close, close to the live experience, as close as to the live experience as possible. Yeah. 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 All, right. All right. Yeah. Because uh, Nick, Nick um, it's in the book there somewhere. I can't tell you right now, even what chapter it was, but, but Nick said, if you're, <clears throat> and this was his experience, certainly with Megadeth, he said, when we were at our best, he said, Metallica was a bigger band, had a cooler name. That was Nick's opinion. <laughs> he said, uh, <clears throat> but but nobody could touch us live. Nobody could touch Megadeth live. He said, when we were at our peak playing live, the there, there was almost a, a fifth member. The band became its own fifth men, member. Mm-hmm. Something happened that was larger than the sum of the parts. A four-headed hydra. Yeah, yeah,
0: like a big monster. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And that,
1: that you could only achieve with live. So yeah, you can't. You can't do that. Sending uh, sending tracks back and forth. Uh, you know, set, like emailing a track to Marty in Japan to have him put the lead on it just just doesn't doesn't cut it in Nick's opinion. Uh,
0: no, and uh, you know, uh, it's when when it comes to. You know, rock and roll and and what rock and roll is supposed to be about. Uh, it is uh, very much a you know intercommunication between several individuals um, that are you know uh, listening and listening to each other and playing together. Uh, yes. And you you cannot achieve that when you are bouncing tracks across the internet. Uh, exactly. So it, it, it hey it makes things really. Uh, 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 far more efficient in some ways but the trade off is you lose uh, a lot of soul I think would, exactly. would be a good way to put it uh, and <laughs> You know, so so I, I I'm totally with, down with Nick's uh, vision on uh, on that, and uh, and I think I don't know I I, I have a feeling we're kind of getting back more to that. I think we've gone through a, a period of, of music where you know it's like you know oh yeah Pro Tools and you know geez we can do this we can do that and we can layer to you know to to we're we're dead and uh, uh, and it's just. Um, you know, at the same time, you end up missing that 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 critical ingredient, and that is you know communication from one human to another or a group of humans to another. Well, yeah, yeah, that that
1: that stuff, as Nick said, that's that's the sketch, all of yeah. the pro cool stuff, all the all the stuff on the laptop. Or in the home studio. That's the sketch. Yeah, so, and that's where it should be. Yeah, you're yeah.
0: right. Yeah, that's where yeah. it should be. Right, right. And then, and then now, let's all get in the studio and play the sucker, and uh, you know, and make it breathe, make it come to
1: life. Yeah, and and Nick was, uh, you know, Nick Nick shared, he he was, um, <clears throat> uh, there was nothing veiled about Nick. He he gave me full access to his life to his emails, everything. And he, he sent me all the emails that were traveling back and forth between the band members at the time of the, uh, you know, the, the last attempt at a reunion. And uh, I mean, some of them were, were kind of um, it, almost in a way to me, especially after rereading them when I was finishing the book after Nick died, rereading them was kind of heartbreaking for me to see these emails back and forth between him and Mustaine where he was, he was begging Mustaine to get everybody together in the studio in one location because Nick was so excited about the tunes and he he had great ideas for lyrics and they you know Nick was pumped but he was he was basically begging so we need to get together we need to have the four of us in a room yeah. then let's find out what this song is really about let's see where this song really goes and it never happened
0: yeah that's too bad yeah. well hey let's talk about some of the good times in the band uh, i'm right. going to just throw some so quick words out, and you give sure. me your thoughts on that.
1: So first, Latin America and Japan. Uh, insane fans. Nick uh, Nick told me that the, the best fans in the world um, – well, he said, first of all, Megadeth fans were universally incredible, or as Nick always said, they were so rad. But he said, no, South America, insane. Just absolutely untethered, unbelievably crazy fans down there who appreciated the music and the band and, and everything else. Uh, he said he loved the Japan crowds too. They, they were almost to the very point. Very
0: different, very uh, almost the opposite. Because, almost the opposite. You know, you but, get the but, unbridled passion of the Latin Americans, and then you get the staid uh, discipline of the Japanese
1: but with no less enthusiasm in that yeah. they're listening at every bloody note. They yeah. know every, every note. Right. Nick loved, Nick loved the cruise in Japan. He, he said uh, he was always amused by this. And, oh, that's right. I remember that. From this book. in the book where he said, you know, they, the band's, uh, the band's road crew would set up the first show and the Japanese crews would actually photograph everything that first night. And from then on in on the tour, the, uh, the Megadeth crew, they got to, to break early and just hang out and, and eat sushi and drink uh, drink sake, as Nick nice. said. Because the, the Japanese crews would set up, and he said it would be dialed in exactly like the night before. They'd tear down, ship to the next gig, and he said the same thing the next night. He said yeah. would, the precision was absolutely surgical. Yeah, they'd
0: walk on stage, including the half-smoked cigarette from last night was still. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it wasn't a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, all
1: right, all right. Here's another one. Northern yeah. Northern Ireland. Nick was actually uh, <laughs> Castle Donington. Nick was the uh, was Chuck's um, tech on that uh, that tour, that show, and there was a lot of substance abuse going on in the band at the time. And uh, I'm not telling tales out of school here. Every, every band member who's uh, well. Uh, the two Daves and Nick, all in in memoirs, have have said, yeah, that w- that was a bad time for all yeah, of us. Heavy drugs. And we're talking heavy we're talking heavy drugs heroin, yeah. the hall. and alcohol. Uh, and and Mustaine went out and and made a comment about uh, uh, about the the troubles which, of course, is such, such a flashpoint, and about making uh, Ireland for the Irish again, which caused a riot between the Catholics and the Protestants in the crowd. And they had to, they were, the security hustled them onto a bus, got them out of there, the bus was pelted with bottles and rocks and the whole deal. And Nick's, <laughs> Nick said, well, at least Dave got the song Holy Wars out of it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, part, part of the, the calamity of, of that period in the band's life. All right. All right.
0: How about, uh, uh, Monsters of Rock tours?
1: Kind of the same thing. And, and, uh, well, the early ones was, uh, uh, was drug abuse was, uh, I believe it was the first one is where, uh, Ellison, um, packed it in where he, he just, his, uh, his heroin addiction was so bad he, he was not functioning anymore and they had to cancel that. And I actually had dinner with, uh, with Ellison a couple months ago, um, here in cape cod and we were talking about that and how he uh, you know the the blessings of cleaning up which nick did too in later life nick nick cleaned up um <clears throat> but that um, you know that, that just was so compromising to the music not not to mention health and and personal spirituality and everything else but it was on the last tour um i, I think it was the last one where they were um supporting Ozzy, and that's where nick had the uh, benign tumor and had the surgery and then you know two days later got, got fired off the tour and, and out of the band and everything else. So, um, they they're, they're <clears throat> rock and Rio, I think had a better track record with, uh, with, with Megadeth.
0: Uh, the rock and Rio, uh, shows. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: All right. Uh,
0: Milton and playing with Metallica. Wasn't that the first time that, uh, yeah. the Mustaine, uh, got back, uh, on the same bill with, uh, his
1: ex bandmates. I believe so and and uh, my recollection there uh, of what Nick talked about it was uh, never comfortable wasn't fun it was it was just the whole thing was was tense and uh, it was it, none of it was about the music Really yeah that's uh, there that was the impression I got from Nick was it, uh, it it wasn't it wasn't fun it was you know great for the fans and and, of course, that's a reason in itself to do it, naturally. You know, not to dismiss it, but, you know, as, as somebody in the wings. It, it was actually the first show he ever played with, uh, I believe, the first show he ever played with uh, Megadeth. Um, some of the guys, uh, I think Lars and... Um, I forget, I'm not sure who, who else it was, but I think a couple of the guys from Metallica were there. They they showed up to see what Mustaine was up to with, with Nick and... Um, and they Mustaine bailed. Uh, he, he took the guys and you know Marty and took the four of them and bailed didn't go backstage after. Um, so it was it was tense not just in behind the it was te- as tense behind the scenes as it was in the public. you know so just just not uh, it's not a good atmosphere, it's not a good vibe. Uh, holding uh, old uh, wounds
0: uh, open, yeah. I guess so. yeah. All right. Well, then, geez, that was supposed to be the good times. Um, (laughs) I guess now I got to bring up Portland.
1: Oh, yeah, that was um, uh, Nick. Nick himself was very heartbroken about that. Um, There was a platform fence kind of thing at the, the front of the stage collapsed and kids rushing forward. It turned into a riot. And it was through no fault of the, the band, you know, who, whose ever fault it was, promoter, who, you know, it, I guess it doesn't really matter. Thankfully, nobody was injured. That was the most important thing. However, on the bus, leaving, the rushing from the venue, I guess Mustaine was so upset. And and I qualify this by, you know, you, this is in Mustaine's book as well, as, as other sources. He he dropped a bottle of, uh, he took a bottle of Valium and he... Um, he overdosed before they even made it to the hotel, so they the detoured, went to the hotel, and Ms. Mustaine was dead. He was clinically dead in the ER and, uh, you know, ended up in a coma for days or a couple of weeks and, you know, off to rehab after that, and that aborted the tour, um, which was, at the time, their most promising, their biggest tour. They had Stone Temple Pilots opening for them, not the other way around, and and they were that was going to be the first show at the Botokan in um, Tokyo, which of course Marty that was you know a lifelong dream of marty's and that really that really uh, knocked the wheels off um, off off the band for a long time nick even suggested that they never really recovered from that 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 it was uh, from there on they were always ma- trying to catch up to where they were at the start of that that year would have been year long tour with stone temple pilots that they right. they never, never got it back after that
0: uh, I, I'm not sure if Stone Temple Pilots would have ended up as a, a supporting act for a year. They were just coming up and about ready to explode. But I see your point. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they, they definitely that, – that, that's a great double bill uh, oh, yeah, of, yeah. of, of some and here,
1: good hard rock. Let me throw one in there. I don't even know if this one's in the book. This little aside. Uh, I guess <clears throat> Scott didn't uh, didn't like doing uh, sound checks for whatever reason or whatever. Scott Weiland from Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or whatever whatever distractions may or may not have been going on. So it's actually Nick would go out with them and he would he would do, do the uh, the sound check. Nick was a great vocalist. If oh, people- he would uh, t- he would do
0: uh, Weiland's parts. Huh? Oh, okay.
1: No, no, he'd do Nick's parts. They'd go out and uh, and cover Zeppelin. They go out and do oh. Zeppelin. Cover- Oh, for, and- <laughs> uh, for a sound
0: check. Oh, okay. Just for Nick the sound stars. check. Right.
1: Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, how funny is that? Oh, yeah. that is very cool. Very cool. All
0: right. So, for 10 years, Mustaine could keep a solid lineup, and, and Megadeth was a huge touring band. I mean, Rust in yeah. Peace, Countdown to Extinction, Euthanasia are considered all time metal classics. Uh, the Ooh. Hidden Treasures EP, uh, and uh, with the soundtrack. Um, but I have to ask about cryptic writings because it seems this is where the real cracks begin to form for, for, for Nick
1: there. What, what happened? Yeah. He, well, he didn't like the recording process. Again, there were, it was click tracks. It was, uh, not it, live. they brought in Bud Prager. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, not, not happy about that process. And Nick was also burning out, um, on all the touring he wasn't happy about the dynamics in the band and of course there was a lot of internal friction there was a lot of um um you know trouble with the record companies and uh and you know intermittent alcohol and drug abuse by the uh, by some by some of the band members and uh and then Of course, Mustaine. I believe he was clean at that time, but he insisted on uh, drug testing for all the band, all the all the. So everybody
0: else had to be clean.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Nick refused. Um, Uh You know, Nick wasn't. He'd like to join and he'd like to have a beer after the show. You know, Nick wasn't abusing hard drugs at that time, but he. You know, that was Nick's personality too, and where he really clashed with Mustaine, and Mustaine says the same thing in his own. Um, memoirs he, he he said that Nick was the holdout and all this stuff. Um, you know, Nick <clears throat> Nick was his own man and uh, you know, didn't didn't bow to Mustaine at all. Perhaps not even those times when, you know, maybe he should have, as as you pointed out, Mustaine being the, the team leader, the band leader. <clears throat> but but there was a lot of friction. And <clears throat> he is the captain. Captain Ply perhaps, but yeah, he's still the yeah. captain. <clears throat> yeah, and Nick didn't like the direction of the music. He he thought it was um, getting too poppy to, you know, it it was, it was, it was less. No, Prager was uh, Foreigner's
0: old uh, producer, right? Yeah,
1: Yeah. and and that was Nick's thing. He said, you bring in Foreigner's producer, that's what you're going to get um you know mega foreigner the, soft, the, yeah. so, the softer
0: side of mega death yeah oh uh, yeah uh, well i you know i could see where let's see so this was after portland so and as you said portland was where nick i think first started to see the cracks in uh yeah that and then so Mustaine gets uh gets cleaned you know realizes that uh you know he had a near-death experience and um he um uh, you know, uh, comes back and uh, decides he he wants to make a pop album, and it is kind of a it's a weirdly sort of you know popish version of of, of Megadeth, and I, I'm sure you know he's looking at his ex bandmates and seeing all the giant success that they're having, uh, uh, you know, huge record sales, um, yeah, you know, Grammys and all that, uh, and so they go down this road and it just doesn't work out too well,
1: huh? Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, Nick was um, <clears throat> favorable about the. This is the thing: is Nick would always see the good in something, well, almost always. Um, and that record, he, you know, he, he said that one. He saw a lot of Marty's influence in that because that's Marty's thing, is uh, you know, and that's what Marty's done ever since. He left. Yeah. Uh, Marty Friedman is, uh, you know, the a more pop sensibility, mm. and um, <clears throat> you know, certainly, uh, definitively less thrashy. Um, you know, so Nick Nick thought it was a, a well crafted record, just not a mega. It just wasn't a Megadeth record. You yeah. know, that, that's the way Nick viewed it. Yeah.
0: All right. So now the hardest moment in Nick's life, and 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 that begins with a knee problem while out on tour. Yeah. Uh, can we also talk about how
1: grueling a mid-90s Megadeth tour schedule was? <clears throat> well, I you know it's funny. I he showed me the um the, the tour books, you know, the book that every 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 band member, every crew member would have. You know, all all bands do this. It's just yeah. so you know, when you're out on the road <clears throat> for ten months or twenty months, you know what hotel you're supposed to be at on what day, and the name of the you know name and cell phone number of the roadman. You know, all the info you yeah, the basics uh, that, that one, you can survive uh, <clears throat> one, and not yeah. get lost. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because it all you know, Nick, as Nick said, after you've done three or four world tours, it really blurs together. Oh, you know, every you know, city, city looks the same, and, and yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but he said. Mustaine, um, and this was complimentary with, with an aside, Nick Nick said, Mustaine has such a work ethic that there were no days off on a Megadeth tour. There were non-performance days, but those were not days off. And he showed me the tour book and it said that, it, it would say that, non-performance day, it wasn't day off. Um, <clears throat> So it was. It was. So it was. A, what?
0: What did that mean? I mean, did they? Did they go to the arena and 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 play, or did they go to the studio and try to record, or, 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 or you know, did Dave just demand that they all show up and count heads?
1: It, no, no, not necessarily. But it was. It was. You know, be on standby. Uh-huh. Was, you know, we're we're out here, you know, for a reason. This is not a pleasure cruise. We're not out here vacationing. We're not here to see Paris. <laughs> so. Well,
0: wait a minute. I thought that's the point of joining the circus is to go out and uh, have some fun. You know? So, oh, a little bit more like a military venture. Well, yeah, he he's yeah. That's how, that's how Mustaine ran the, ran the show then. <clears throat> All right, so the knee problem that uh, that begins to, to become a, a an issue, and I think this had, had
1: been affecting him for a while, right? It had yeah, for several months. It was it was a soreness he told me in the knee, <clears throat> and uh, you know, which was exacerbated with you know two-hour punishing shows, uh, you know, playing that kind of music, playing the way Nick did, you know, standing up because of the 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 rack system he had on the drum kit he'd stand up to hit the crash symbols and you know he it was talk about the punishment due. that's what he was doing to himself every night and and it became painful he went and had it looked at and there was a tumor on the knee and a growth so they they went in and uh, and took it out and you know thankfully it was benign um <clears throat> and uh, you know it looked like he'd be off he was hoping for maybe a week maybe up 10 days 2 weeks he'd be off the tour uh, and yeah. mustaine told him hey go and get this done man right. yeah 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 don't don't push this you know that that's nuts have yourself looked after it was 2 days after the surgery mustaine called him at in at the hospital and said you know uh, your your services are no longer required and nick thought he was joking he said you know don't don't screw around uh, This is not but not the time to be fucking around with me mistaken. no, no, I don't think you're hearing me. Um, we're we're letting you go. And yeah, uh, just on the phone, and 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 Nick's still in the hospital, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is two days. He's in recovery. He's in the, um, <clears throat> yeah, in in the hospital now. Um, if Nick almost <clears throat> not defended Mistaine, but he he even tries to in the book tries to explain. Mustaine's behavior. He said, Well, you know, we had been fighting a lot, the two of us. Um, he said, You know, I wasn't backing down with him. I was, um, <clears throat> you know, I was being a bit of a jerk and, you know, try, trying to piss Mustaine off here and there. It was like brothers, like sibling rivalry. He was trying to, you know, get Mustaine's goat and they were not getting along. Uh, Nick wanted more influence in the band, wanted more involvement in the songwriting. Uh, more m- involvement in the direction of the band, particularly the recording process. As we've said, he you know he wanted to work live, analog, without a click track. He wanted the band band to write music, not just Mustaine come to the band with songs and you know that that sort of thing. He wanted it to be more participatory, and um, and you know he was getting a lot of static and a lot of resistance from Mustaine, and I think <clears throat> it's been expressed in the in in the way that nick talked about it with me that marty was beginning to lose interest you know in being a super active member of the band not that he was slacking off don't mistake me yeah. but it was just you know he he was starting to tire of the way things were going and the music i mean um friedman is a you know a virtuoso guitar virtuoso and <clears throat> you know it's it's it would appear that he was becoming a little a little um frustrated with the the music and you know not being able to to stretch further, uh, at least in the songwriting he wanted to do. And so Nick saw this as, you know, this was Mustaine's chance to to get rid of Nick, to, you know, to get rid of this this huge irritant in his side, this guy who wouldn't comply, who wanted to do things differently, wanted more involvement in, you know, the decision-making process, the management, and and wouldn't, you know, do a piss test, you know, for drugs. So he was a thorn in Mustaine's side, and Nick admitted that. He said, you know, so that was his chance, and, and he took it.
0: Yeah, but to do it on the phone two days after surgery when the guy is still in the hospital, that's a little unforgivable. Well. I mean, uh, it's something tells me he probably
1: would have texted him today. Well, uh, text or email. When, you know, I got, I got a t- – well, I have never ended a phone conversation with Mustaine where he didn't hang up on me. <laughs> um, and the uh, the the when the the reunion tour was coming together the the one that never happened when it looked like it was going to come together and there are all these emails flying back and forth with the songs um, with uh, discussions of how they were going to break, they were going to break the news at Nam, and you know how, <clears throat> how they were going to gear up the social media. and And Dave Mustaine was very careful about telling all the guys, "Don't do anything on your Facebook or Twitter. We got to be quiet about this. There's already rumblings in the community that the the, the you know the, the classic lineup is going to get back together, and we got to be very careful." They were planning on how to announce it and everything else, and <clears throat> then the, when there were problems uh, with it, it just came down to money, you know, Nick's management um, handling negotiations and Mustaine handling, and it got really terse. And uh, and the mis- I've got the emails. Uh, it was actually the publisher of the book who decided let's not put them in. It just makes Mustaine look so bad. It'll look, It's nasty. It's a nasty trick. Nick wanted them in the book. The publisher decided against it, probably for legal reasons too. Um, I, I think if it comes down to it, the author of an email – has the copyright to that. So we couldn't publish Mustaine's emails, but they were, they were nasty. You know, they're really, really nasty to Nick and, um, just like a a kid throwing yeah, a they, they I, I think if I remember right, they, they, they basically wanted
0: him to do it for nothing. Right. In the end well, it was kind of pushed into the, uh, you know, you're just a hired hand and you know, here's yes. scale. Uh, uh
1: well, not, not even that for the rehearsals and the album, they weren't going to pay him anything. Yeah. That's that's come
0: on, uh, you know. The yep. whole point was to get this classic lineup together, uh, you know. And there's no reason to, to. There's no way this is not going to get there uh, like if the if Mustaine does not know that that is the classic lineup of, of Megadeth. You know, it just it's just never going to happen if he does not have that already in his head. Um, but you know, at the same time, uh, I can understand why. You know you know the you know the, the the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder is saying yeah but remember all those problems come back with those guys
1: yeah yeah and uh, and the, the thing was uh, had it just been about the money I think it could have been resolved a little more easily but um, you know Nick Nick wasn't destitute what Nick needed was the respect and and when it became you know we're yes we're gonna pay you you know 10 scale plus 10 or you know whatever it was um you know i, I did see the numbers i saw you know nick and he, he included me on everything I, I i saw all the information but the big thing was not paying him for the rehearsals or the writing and recording of the album and that wasn't about money nick took that as um, Respect. Yeah, as, yeah. as an insult and yeah. almost you know nick nick said he just, he just doesn't want to admit that he was wrong to fire me he doesn't want to admit that breaking up that lineup of Megadeth um, you know, was a bad idea. He doesn't want to admit that. And that's what it came down to. And, and Nick always described him, and this I can say not unfairly from my personal experience with Mustaine, he threw a temper tantrum, and that's, that's what it was. And so the whole thing went south, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic well, like I said, there, there's no way it would have got this close without him, without
0: Mustaine knowing that this was the classic lineup of M- Megadeth. It's just, it just is. So there, uh, you Blended know, he would have, he would have fluffed it off uh, at the first suggestion. Like, why? That's not that important. Uh, but well, if it was really, if it really was, then it would, it got, it got really close, and it did several times.
1: Oh, oh it, it got very close this, this last time. Like I say, they were writing songs, yeah. Mustaine sending him songs. Uh, demos to play on, to, to contribute lyrics and everything, and and they were tra- and Mustaine was trying to be very careful about um, about the public finding out that this was going on. He was holding the cards very close to his vest. At the same time, in there, they're talking about how big this you know would be, and that this this would put Megadeth back in in you know headlining stadiums all yeah. over the world. Yeah, and there was there was an acknowledgement of that, and so that that's why you know Nick found it doubly or trebly insulting that uh, you know that they were they weren't weren't coming coming up with with money yeah. and uh, you know he, even for the as i say for the rehearsals and for the recording of the album he just found that insulting so after uh the firing uh i i, I know uh
0: you know nick Took a turn for the worst. Uh, it, it must have been absolutely devastating, and it took him several years to kind of, you know, get back uh, into uh, the swing of things. But he did. He, he, he put a band together called Ohm uh, with Chris Poland on guitar and uh, Pag Pagliari on on bass. Uh,
1: well, know, sort of a sort of a jazz metal band, right? Well, yeah. He he. It was not his band. It was he. He joined after uh, David Eagle uh, passed away um ironically of uh, heart heart uh, trouble oh. um a year before it was um yeah it was, really? it was yeah it's, it's chris and pag's band and they they brought nicky in uh, first of all actually was to play a benefit for david he'd suffered a heart attack and <clears throat> on stage at the baked potato no uh, way yeah, yeah, and he—he uh, he was in hospital, I believe ICU. I could be wrong there, but he was—he was in hospital. Oh, but he survived. He survived. Oh, and oh. Uh, and so I was they say this is starting to sound like a spinal tap. Uh, well, no, it's—it's it's, it, it's going to. Uh, this was a—they uh, organized a benefit for David and his family, uh, which Nick played. That was the first time he played with Ohm. and uh, so that's when he uh, Nick worked with uh, David over the phone. And uh, and David giving him the the thumbs up. Uh, I think Nick Nick said, you know, this is really difficult stuff the way you play. And David said, well, don't don't play the way I play. Play the way Nick Menza plays. And uh, so they had this great relationship in these days or weeks of organizing the the benefit concert. And then while in hospital, David did pass away um, tra- tragically. And so after that, uh, they invited Nick to join the band. And, and it was a workout. He was, um, Nick, Nick said that that was, um, pretty much his, his favorite, favorite band looking back was playing with them, that that was the most challenging. Um, and I, I know I, he loved it. I was, um, you know, I, I was there, I saw rehearsals, um, and I was at the, I was at the baked potato on occasion, not, not the night he passed away, but, uh, but yeah, he, you know, he, he went through a lot of depression, um, and he was pretty secretive about drug abuse and stuff until we started working on the book. And he said, "You know what? Uh, it's out there. There's, there are interviews with me on on YouTube, and I, I look like a corpse. You know, I'm, I'm I'm I've destroyed myself on you know smoking meth." And he said, "Hey, why don't I? No shame. Why don't I talk about this? Why don't I talk about why I cleaned up? Why I got better? Um, and if that's you know has some effect and has one kid put down the." um, the meth pipe or not pick the meth pipe up, it's all been worth it. And that was Nick's attitude, which is why there's an entire chapter in the book on, on drinking and, and and drugs drugs and and addiction. Yeah. 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 He, he decided to not just come, come clean, pardon the pun, but, you know, be an advocate for, for health basically. I want to ask you something else
0: about uh, an interesting uh, a piece that you put in the book, and, and those are the, 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 the pieces from Nick's family, friends, and professionals that make comments throughout
1: it. Uh, was that done after Nick's passing? Yeah, it was. It was the only way I, I figured I could include um, contemporary comment and, uh, and reflections on Nick, and, and quite frankly, uh, I encountered this first in the second chapter where Nick's mom was talking about Um, In Germany, because Nick was born in Munich. He was actually born in in Germany.
0: Yeah, while while dad was on tour playing in in Europe. Yeah,
1: that's right. And Nick's mom, uh, when she'd be doing the laundry or housework or what have you, to occupy Nick, the, the infant Nick, she'd put him on the kitchen floor with pots and pans and wooden spoons, and he would bang away as if he were playing a drum kit. And she, but she said, as long as I heard noise, I knew he wasn't wasn't getting into any trouble. <laughs> right. Some of these stories, yeah. she was telling them to me, and I couldn't. The book is written in Nick's voice. Yeah. So I, I couldn't use those quotes after the fact without just having having a, a you know a footnote or a sidebar and we ended up going with sidebars because they're a little bit a little bit easier and uh, and the other thing is Alfson <clears throat> after Nick passed away um, he, you know, on reflection, had all, all this material to share with me. Um, and he's, he's a great guy. Dave Ellefson's a, a really, really nice man. He's, he's really a, a sweet soul and very kind. And, and he, I give him a lot of credit. He was very, very nice to me, very kind to me and the family and, um, and, and giving me unfettered access. And, uh, and, you know, he'd think of things and then reach out to me, <clears throat> remembrances and uh, I thought it was the, the best way to include as much of that material as I could is if they were sidebars right in the book. So how are
0: Nick's boys doing? Are they following the family tradition uh, in music? And that's Nicholas and Dante, right?
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah, they, they both play. Um, <laughs> Nick, in a, a very praiseworthy passing criticism, he <laughs> laughingly, uh, I would ask him, that same question and he said well <clears throat> you know whomever whether it's nicholas or dante he'd say well no now he's great on on keyboards but he, he won't decide the kids you know they're great at everything they do and you know he um it was a begrudging frustration he said that i keep telling them they need to settle down just play bass just play drums just play guitar uh so the you know they're both extremely talented boys and um where they're at today whether." Uh, one or the other or both um, has settled on a, on an instrument. I actually don't know, but they're, uh, yeah, they're they're both very very talented, very very creative boys.
0: All right, last question, and I'll all begin right. with a quote from Nick. I pledge allegiance to the frequencies of the United Field of Acoustics and to the vibrations for which they sound on sine wave under oscillation, invisible with equal and just tuning for all. <laughs> What more, yeah what more can you can you leave us with about uh, Nick
1: Menza he was hilarious he he loved all things um, conspiratorial he loved conspiracy theories <laughs> I don't know I honestly honestly don't know what he believed um, <clears throat> he would tease me that he he started to become an adherent of uh, flat earth which you know is very oh, silly but my god in, in one breath he'd see doubt the moon landings and in the next uh, tell me that he he was pretty sure that the the Nazis had actually fled to the moon. They had a moon base on the dark side. Nick loved he loved this stuff and UFOs. He faked a UFO sighting, uh, which he put up on YouTube, and uh, he he loved that kind of junk to get a rise out of people. Um, <clears throat> he'd talk about um, oh you know. <clears throat> vaccinations which is a hot issue right now or you know he 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 maintained that he thought fema was was just in existence to set up camps for us all when the the hammer falls and he i actually don't think nick believed a lot of this stuff indeed if he believed in any of it but the thing was it wasn't as flippant as perhaps it may have seemed or as i just described it the reason nick did this was he wanted people to think he would float out some of these theories you know like um, uh, we, we, you know, we can't. We've never been to outer space. We can't go to outer space because of the uh, the Von Allen radiation belt. We'd just be toasted. We'd be microwaved in the capsule. The capsule would have to be eight feet thick iron or, uh, you know, um, lead walls. You know, he said, "There's no way we can go to outer space." He didn't believe that, but he wanted to say that just to find out what your reaction would be. So did you argue with him over some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> No, I, I wouldn't. I, I just kind of laugh and go, well, <laughs> I, I would tease him about that very, I take a step back and go, why are you trying to get that reaction from me? You know how I'll react. And <clears throat> so we never really discussed it on a, on a serious level. Did you but, see him uh,
0: argue with people on this, uh, on oh, these uh, oh, conspiratorial oh, ideas?
1: Yeah, he, he loved it. He oh. loved it. So ride. it was just, just, to, just to get a, uh, some mental gymnastics going then. Well, he, yeah, and not in a mean-spirited way. He, it, was, it was playful. It was brain tennis for him. But he, he liked to get people to think about things.
0: So he never uh, got mean or or definitely oh, serious about these uh, no. cockamamie <clears throat> ideas. He he would just put float them out
1: there and, and see uh, what kind of fodder would come back. Oh yeah, yeah. He it, it was fun for him. He was Nick was so artistic. He made candles. He painted. He made sculptures. <clears throat> um, some of the, the creepiest, coolest things he did was he, he made fetuses alien fetuses <laughs> and he pickled them with aldehyde and got laboratory labels to put on them and you know biohazard stickers he did this for fun and they'd be in the kitchen these things hanging out
0: sounds um, like he could have had a career in
1: hollywood oh yeah yeah that was um <clears throat> well one of the things nick was working on the last year was uh was an animated series. He, he, he wanted to do a, an animation called Atomic Disintegrator. He loved science fiction, all things animated. He wanted to do it with the boys involved his, his two boys on that. And, you know, the, the guy was nonstop. He started building Cajones, uh, the, the South American, uh, percussion instruments and the beautiful woodwork. He sent one to my wife. Uh, he made them for other, for other friends of mine and his, and, uh, you know, they're magnificent. They're he, he experimented with different woods, turning the, the wood grains different ways. I mean, he was highly experimental. He made his own um, uh, studio headphones that were, uh, uh, you know, like completely isolating so that he could play as loud as he wanted and, and they wouldn't spill into the overhead mics in the studio. And they, he was just endless. He built the studios in his, or the. I'm sorry, the speakers, the monitors in his own studio. He built them to his own specifications. He, uh, you know, the guy was relentless. His 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 energy and his um, creative powers. Yeah, he, he he comes across in the book
0: as a really really interesting guy. A uh, 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 a very fun uh, and 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 a uh, uh, sweet soul. Uh, Super sweet. I, I, I think that that that's that's obvious. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, it's funny, you, you know, you don't you don't get a lot of books like this uh, about sidemen. And, uh, he, you know, he was a character. Uh, that's true. Uh, and I'm sure he could be a pain in the ass. Uh, certainly <laughs> to, to Dave Mustaine uh, or anybody who would take that sort of leadership mantle and uh, not wield it, uh, uh, you know, accordingly. And... Um, Uh, you know, it's, it's too bad. It's that he, he, he had such a a short life. I I would have liked to have seen more of what, 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 what happened to him. So, um, well, Jeff Marshall, Craig, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being with us on deeper digs and rock today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's hear it for J. Marshall Craig. Thank you very much, Jeff. Wow, lots to take in here. Nick sounds like someone I would have loved to hang out with and share a laugh or two. It's too bad the classic Megadeth lineup never was able to return. And while Mustaine and Ellefson with revolving cast have continued on, still able to grab audiences worldwide and certainly considered one of the Hydra heads of the late 80s and 90s metal monster. It does seem like something was lost without Nick Menza, as well as Marty Friedman on lead guitar. Uh, We've seen this many times before. There really is magic when a certain group of people come together and make music. Remove one piece and more often than not, uh, like a Jenga puzzle, the whole thing comes crashing down. Now, that didn't exactly happen to Megadeth, uh, and I'm sure uh, many of you are out there saying, well, what about this band, or what about that band? And yeah, I hear you, I hear you, but ask yourself, were they really ever as good as the classic lineup? Okay, now on ACDC, I get a pass. Come on, one in a million, you get even bigger. Mostly, (laughs) it's diminished uh, returns in at least some small way. Uh, Perhaps uh, their time would have been up uh, and the downhill slide begin anyway. Uh, I mean, was Nick really satisfied after cryptic warnings? Uh, You know, who knows? What's done is done. Rust in peace, as the man says. Okay, until next week, I'm Christian Swain, the Rock and Roll archaeologist, and... Keep up the head banging. Don't
1: remember where I was. I realized life was a game. More
0: seriously, I took things the harder the loss became. I had no idea what it cost. My life passed before my eyes I found out how little I accomplished All my plans tonight So as you read, there's no Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can, too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios.